Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzola here with Sam Monson. It is draft week, Sam. We've made it. We're going to have a draft this week. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, finally here. Big week, Steve. Big week. The entire NFL landscape is going to change and go nuts. Speaking of landscape, Sam, do you have any projects going back at home during quarantine? Uh, this is just off the cuff that I'm asking you here. That's a perfect segue, Steve. Well done. Um, yeah, so I'm, I decided that I was going to landscape my, my front yard, right? We've reached the stage of quarantine where it's like, yeah, sure, I can re-landscape my entire front yard by myself. So, you know, what do you need? You need some, you need some new plants. You need some tools to do it with, right? And you need a whole bunch of dirt. Because you're going to have to cover it up with a bunch of stuff. The only problem is the plants haven't showed up yet, right? So all I can do is make a mess. I can't actually put it all together and, like, fix it yet. So I'm at the front of the weekend, and I'm using, the like, the garden hoe to just dig up the ground. And uh, my neighbor from across the street goes, uh, hey, I, uh, I got, a, like, a heavy-duty thing if you want to borrow that. I'm like, oh, yeah. All right. Goes into his garage, emerges with like a legitimate pickaxe, like this kind of thing that people were down mines with in the 19th century, like hammering out ore and stuff. So I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm using that. So I used a, like a legitimate mining pickaxe to edge the uh, the lawn. Not for like, really? I didn't, really didn't need it for anything, but it, like it, it made quite an entertaining uh, lawn edger. Does your dirt look good now? Well, it looks like a mess. I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for the plants to arrive before I can actually turn the thing into something. Also, it turns out that, like, I ordered quite a lot of dirt. So we're probably going to be creating, like, a raised flower bed in the back because mm. I don't have anywhere to put it. 
can't wait to see the final product, buddy. What are you doing, Steve? You got any projects on the go over in uh, Shea Palazzola? No, but I told my wife that you were doing that, and she said, why don't you do stuff like that? So that was it. <laughs> that's why I texted you and said, whose idea was this? Because she thinks that you just came up with the idea, and I said, maybe it was Laura's idea. You know, She thinks that you just have these great grand yeah. ideas on how to improve your house. It was me. Oh, I just decided that I didn't like any of the plants at the front. I'm going to change them all. How hard all right, Kelly, don't listen to this podcast because that was uh, uh, hashtag. How hard could it be? I chopped down some trees in my yard a little well, bit. That's not bad. Well, slight, it diced them up, you know, didn't chop down, but still got more work to do. Anyway, <clears throat> let's get into it. Um, a lot of stuff today. First, we're going to go through my final mock draft. Okay, your team got better. Hashtag how hard it could be. Hashtag we're going to get better. Went through my fi- we'll go through my final mock draft. Uh, Peter King from NBC unleashed his one and only mock draft today. And I think there's a lot of interesting nuggets in there. I want to go through some of the things that he mentioned in his article because uh, they're great discussion points. And then I want to get into a piece I wrote last week called PFF Critical Factors. I went position by position and isolated all of the metrics that are stable and unstable by position. And we could kind of apply that to this draft class. But before we begin, we've got a great promo code for everybody this week. So if you're listening, here's the deal. Promo code DRAFT2020. That's DRAFT2020. Allows you to save 30% on any of PFF's annual subscriptions and gain access to the 1,250-page 2020 NFL Draft Guide, Jeff Radcliffe's 2020 Fantasy Rookie Scouting Report, and our interactive Top 250 Big Board and PFF's new and improved player grades experience with new look data visualizations and advanced production grades for every player in the NFL. That's a long-winded sentence, Austin. Anyway, the entire package there is absolutely spectacular. If you have not seen the interactive big board, um, the free agent board that we have, and this new player grades experience, you're going to absolutely love it. The draft guide PDF, you just kind of throw that on top of it. And of course, for all of if you want to dominate fantasy football like I do, Radcliffe's 2020 Fantasy Rookie Scouting Report is a must. So you can have it all at PFF's Edge or Elite subscription. And remember, the promo code is DRAFT2020. It saves you 30% on any of your annual subscription. So you'll have it until, you know, next year at this time. That's what annual means. So go check it out. It's over at PFF.com. We uh, we got sent the copy for that. And I was like, who who wrote this copy? And Austin said it was me. It was signed off by, you know, marketing. And I was like, yeah, it figures because you're the only human being that could get through that sentence in one breath. You know, Austin's Mar- marketing's like, not the editing team. You know, the editing team would say, like, throw a comma in there. How about a hyphen? <laughs> throw something in there to break it up. Austin's no, 120 mile per hour speech is the only person that could actually get through that sentence, right. you know, sensibly. He's like, oh, this is a 15 second read. I'm like, what? You, that's like a minute's worth of information there. That you put. Mm-hmm. No, no, it takes me 15 seconds. Anyway, Austin Gale, two for one drafts. Those guys are crushing it as well. So, uh, Sam. Yes. My final mock draft is over at PFF.com today. If you guys are watching live, I don't even know if it's on the on the website yet. I don't even know if it made it. So you'll get a little uh, sneak preview of my final mock. Um, again, I always like to do it based off of – there it is. It's on the site. It's always based off of me as GM, mm-hmm. as every team. You know, It's more of a, a think piece about – you know, this is where we value players. This is, these are the team building strategies. Um, do you want to go through any any question marks there? Let me just start with the, the only trade that I would do as a GM of both teams is the Dolphins trading up from five to two uh, to the Redskins to go get Tua. 
Redskins received 5, 18, and 39, that trade that we've done before. I just didn't loop the Lions in. But that's the only trade that I would absolutely do as um, as GM. Yeah, so it's interesting. Almost all of PFF's mock drafts are the are the what we would do variety, right? Which 99% of the time, I think, are far more useful, right? Because anybody trying to predict what is actually going to happen weeks and months out from the draft, I think is just wasting everybody's time. I don't understand what the purpose of those things is because even right. the most accurate of those things are miles off when we roll around to the draft. Yeah, they get so, like eight or nine players. They, 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 they actually attach the team and player like five times. Right. And, you're, and so, you win. The most, the only purpose of mock drafts for me is like, well, here's here's what these teams should be doing to build, and here's where we think players are project or should be projected based off their it's a, it's talent evaluation meshed with you know team building. That to me is kind of interesting. Where I'm guessing teams are going to pick random guys based off the snippets of information I've heard is pointless. Except right now is the one time where I think it's kind of interesting, right? Because so Peter Kings will get to later, but the idea yeah. of a couple of insiders start to get some talk of certain things that nobody saw coming necessarily. Like in the, the very last days up until the draft, you suddenly start to go, oh, wow, we're actually we're hearing something that nobody thought was going to happen. And that is interesting. So 99 percent of the yeah. time, PFFs are the ones that actually have more purpose to them. And the only other one percent is just before the draft, you get slightly more interesting with the ones that you have that you, uh, the ones that you hear from insiders. Yeah, we'll talk about it with the Peter King stuff because even before he posted his mock, I, I'm wrapping my head around something happening, and uh, I think it's true. I think it's going to happen. I, I think Justin Herbert is going to go to the Dolphins. We'll talk about it more later. I really think Herbert's going to be a Dolphin. I, I think the Dolphins might walk out of this um, with the draft that we don't like. <laughs> whatever that's worth. I, I just think that's um, an absolute possibility. Um, do you want to go through any any picks here that you liked or didn't like or anything? Um, I'll tell you what came up that I thought was, well, at the top of the draft, we talked about this left and right, right? Joe Burrow or Bar- Burrow. Am I saying that right? Burrow? I don't. Guys? I, people have been complaining about your pronunciation of Joe Burrow. And by people, I mean like PFF people. I haven't heard anybody yeah. whinge about it outside of us. Apparently they find it they find it very funny for some reason. I honestly trust me, I am as keen as anybody to jump on your pronunciation of people and mock you it are. mercilessly. But I don't hear a problem with the way you say Burrow. Thank you. Joe Burrow. Um they think I'm saying Barrow. Yeah. Like Michael I don't, Barrow. I don't because I'm just I'm saying I'm trying to say buh. Like buh, 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 not burr. It's burrow. so it's I, I think we've said this before, but it's worth going to the forecast just to hear Eric try and pronounce Tugavailoa because he oh, adds yeah, we, like an extra syllable into it somehow and can't can't stop himself doing it. It's kind of it's awesome to be honest. He has like five he has an extra syllable and three out of the five syllables that he uses aren't pronounced right or something. <laughs> I mean it's just it's 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 really fascinating. It's, it's a piece of war. It's master That's stroke. Like, I think my dad had a twitch at one point where he couldn't say Minneapolis. He would say Minneapolis. So he would he would right. it was it'd be like Minneapolis and it was just well, this like, extra Yeah. Syllable. Like uh like, you know, aluminum versus aluminium. It's not like oh, it's gosh, not a, it's not a twitch. There's like it's actually spelled differently. Yeah. But it's oh, the same yeah. sound, right? You add like an there's extra no, sil- yeah, like an extra kink no in them. Anyway, go let's go through the mock real quick, okay? 
Burrow, Bengals, Tua mm-hmm. to the Dolphins. I said that's the one move I would make. I think I'll get to Washington in a second. The Lions at three. We've talked about this left and right. If, I, if I'm the Lions and I'm deciding between Jeffrey Okuda or Chase Young, I'm not saying I'm sprinting to the podium. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. Right. I just really think you can weigh the options and say Okuda for that team, for that system, for what he brings to the table, his baseline as a good corner is more valuable in the long term than Chase Young being outstanding. So um, I love Chase Young. He's going to go number four to the Giants in my mock draft. I think the Giants are happy, obviously, with getting their Chase Young. But I think the Lions are happy if they get the top corner in the draft as well at number three. Um, So Washington at number five. I put a poll up the other day. I just said hypothetically, you know, if this trade happened, how do you feel? And I think Washington fans are absolutely for the most part, all in on Chase Young. And this trade from Washington going from two to five, picking up an extra first rounder, picking up an an early second rounder, and maybe some more as we talked about. In this particular mock, Washington walks away with Andrew Thomas, our top tackle on the board, and Jalen Rager, one of the top receivers on our board, and a nice deep threat to Terry McLaurin. If you're Washington and you walk away with Andrew Thomas and Jalen Rager, and you have another pick in the second round versus maybe just getting one Chase Young, how are you feeling? pretty damn happy um i think honestly like andrew thomas is or yeah the, the spot tackle is the spot that the browns need to go we all know that um if you parlay that into an extra pick and and wind up snagging one of the better receivers the receiver group is really interesting right because i think you have this top tier of cd lamb and jerry judy i even think that one of the things that's going to happen is this idea of everyone waiting on the receivers, right? Because it's such a deep, such a good class that you can wait knowing there are going to be essentially first round quality players in the second round, even if you didn't do anything. So that it's like a self-perpetuating um, thing as well. Even if you didn't, even if nobody adjusted their draft strategy, there would be first ca- round caliber players available in the second round because everybody knows that everybody is going to adjust their draft strategy and actually increase the chance of that happening by waiting on the first round receivers, which pushes even more of them into the second round. So, but I, so I think that's a going to cause a whole bunch of guys to be available later and B I think it's, it's going to maybe see guys like Jerry Judy even start to slide from like surefire top 10, top five kind of player into the teens somewhere. But after that, it's going to put guys like Rager available way later down, I think, than people are expecting. Um, you, you've been calling that for a while with the Judy slide. So here's here's the thing, right? We're not in this vacuum at PFF, but we certainly have our own style and strategy with regard to this stuff, right? And I, I've mentioned this before, right? When you're so locked in, and I think every team feels this way, they've got their draft board, and it's going to be different than the 31 other draft boards. And... In the top, if you're drafting at 16, in that top 15, there's going to be like five or six picks that you're happy about. You're like, I would never take this guy at 16. I'm glad he's off the board. I think from our point of view, that's going to happen a lot. That would be the Derek Browns of the world, right? Your run stoppers, um, maybe a Makai Becton, who again, good player, just we would take him as a second round player. Um, I, I think there might be even more surprises once the draft veers off of that top six or seven players. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of players where we're looking at this thing saying, wow, we've got three great receivers on the board at 20 or a few cornerbacks that we would be really happy taking in the first round, and they're still there. 
in the late 20s or whatever it might be. So um, I just think that's the reality of the situation. I, I the, the Cleveland Farrell pick last year for the Raiders, the Christian Wilkins pick, right? Um, even the Dexter Lawrence pick. Like here's three really good, solid defensive linemen that we wouldn't pick as high as they were picked. And I think every team probably feels that way. Like, hey, I wouldn't take this guy that high. That's good for me. And my players are going to fall. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a, a bunch of teams that are going to end up because of that. It's interesting. So we come out of the draft every year and it's like, I love this draft. And it's because that draft was the one that was closest to the sort of PFF way of viewing these, uh, projecting these players and the teams that essentially took advantage of that value created by the Christian Wilkins and the Cleveland Furls of the world going higher than we ever thought they should. All right. Um, just going through this a little bit more. The Chargers at six. We've talked about this as a pivot point, especially so, in our world. Hang on. Yep. Let's just let's quickly reverse a second for the, the two thing. If Miami is if my, we'll get to this, I guess, when we talk about the Peter King stuff. But let's assume for a moment that for a start, I think we're, we disagree slightly on the Miami Tua stuff versus Justin Herbert, right? You are starting to buy into this idea that Miami definitely wants Herbert. Um, I'm kind Colin. of, I think I'm the other way, right? I think all that has come out too close to the draft for me to think it as anything other than smoke. I think Miami, given the opportunity, would take Tua. Um, but if they don't, if they're, if you're right and they are skewing towards Herbert over Tua, is it the injury or his play that they're scared of? I, I think I said this on the last podcast. I think there's two things. If you're going to pick Tua's game apart, there's two things that you look at and say, I'm a little concerned, right? The first one is the injury, and it's not just the hip. It's all of the injuries. Right. So it's actually uh, injury, I think, is is a misnomer at this point. The more I hear about it, the more it is being phrased as injuries that, Prone, people, are con- yeah. right, that they, people are concerned by. It's, it's, a thing. it's not that his hip is a long-term concern that is being, that is checking out. It's that he's had like three injuries in two years and now he's, is he, is he durable enough? He's fragile. Here's the other thing though, is there's such a height bias and it's not the one that Robert Mays wrote about, which is like, Hey, you could be too tall for quarterbacks, right? Uh, as a quarterback, the Brock Osweiler's of the world. It is like nobody has anybody ever used the word injury prone for Andrew Luck. No. Like, does anybody eh, exemplify probably, being injury prone? Eventually they will. Right. But, like, the guy missed an entire season. Yes. He was always a little banged up. And then he retired early because of injuries. But nobody's going to go. It's more like, oh, it's unfortunate that this guy's career ended due to injuries. They're not, like, if, if he was coming out of retirement. Well, or Cam Newton. Or Cam Newton. Cam Newton's not injury prone. Big Ben. In fact, almost all of the most injury prone quarterbacks you can think of are monsters. They're monsters. They're huge. They battle. They're tough. They play through injury and all that stuff. A slight guy like Tua who gets banged up is injury prone because you expect slight guys to not be as durable. And I don't know that that's the case. We've talked about this quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to, you know, reiterate that we're reiterating something. They the, the playing style that you have is going to bring the injuries to you. I mean, that's like Andrew Luck holding the ball longer, taking more hits, even with the bad offensive line. Part of that was on him. Big Ben, hold the ball, take more hits. I mean, it is part of the style. Now, Tua has some of that style in him, but it's the style more than his being slight that I think is the key. So, um, yeah, I I think when people talk about, like, 
you know, you get like the, the white defensive end that's got the high motor and all that stuff. And, and there's like, you know, racial undertones within those things sometimes. But I think there are height undertones when it comes to durability because people just assume, and this happens in baseball too, Sam, a 6'3 to 6'5 pitcher is immediately labeled as durable. Oh, he's got a big, big durable frame. And um, maybe we should be talking about Andrew Luck and Big Ben and Cam Newton as injury prone the same way we are Tua. Well, we um, had this, we had, yeah, we had this discussion and I think where it was, where this discussion was most obvious was the year Jared Goff and Carson Wentz came out, right? Because Jared Goff was like, what, six two three and like 210 pounds, right? He's skinny. Um, yep. So he was seen as, is he durable enough? And yet Carson Wentz is like six five two thirty plus, and he's the guy that has been injury prone and was all the way through college as well. And the same thing has been true. So we had this discussion at the time. It's like, which guy should you be having injury concerns with the guy that's skinny and might snap if you hit him or the guy that's actually got a fairly extensive injury history at this point and is huge. And our argument at the time was you should probably at the very minimum, you should be equally concerned about both these guys. And to be honest, should probably be more concerned about Wentz and Goff. And in the NFL, that's held up, right? Wentz is the guy that's had the major injuries and Goff has been pretty much clean. Um, and then, the, then you have the added layer of it is like, so I do think there is a thing as injury proneness, right? I think there are certain guys that for whatever reason are just more brittle than other people, right? The, um, Tyler Eifert's of the world, right? The Rodney Anderson's of the world guys that for whatever reason, their body's just not put together the same as other people. And it falls to pieces more readily, but I don't know that we've actually gotten anywhere with being able to identify that early. Like how many injuries do you need before you can identify, okay, this guy is actually injury prone, right? So you and I can take a look at Tyler Eifert's history and be like, that guy is pretty injury prone. I don't need a medical degree for that. But how early in the Tyler Eifert evolution of injuries could you have put a finger on that in terms of like medical um you know, medical information, medical diagnoses and say, all right, that guy is someone to stay away from because his injury history is too pronounced, right? So like, was it is three? Are we already at the point where if you'd have been looking at Tyler Eifert's history, you'd say, no, I don't want any part of this because that's based, that's where two is, right? So my point is essentially, can you look at his injury history right now and say, Tua is injury prone. We don't want any part of that. If you are, like, if you can, that at least is part of the discussion, and that that levels him versus Herbert a lot, if you know that he's definitely injury-prone. But my question is, I don't know if we can even do that or if we're just guessing based off three injuries. Yeah, I, look, the injuries are a thing. I, I get it. I, I think that they're, they're a factor. There's something you have to consider. But people are throwing this out there as if Justin Herbert is the safe pick because of this, right? right. And I, I just think... There's all. There's just so much nuance to all of this stuff, right? That's that's like that's a binary scenario. Like you're injury prone or you're not. Therefore, you're not injury prone, right? So therefore, you're safe. Not even taking into consideration if two is on the football field and Herbert's on the football field, and you simulated the next, you know, uh, you know, the next four seasons a thousand times. Say, two is probably going to outperform Herbert eighty percent of the time, eighty five percent of the time, right? So if you view it from that lens which is like we have a lot of information in college which can help project these guys to the next level and say 75, 80, 85% of the time, two is better. 
right? Then you balance that against, okay, there's injury. Like maybe he doesn't play. There's, you know, injury. Maybe that makes it 70-30 to a 65-35 to a just taking the injury considered. Because it doesn't mean it's not like he's destined to be Bo Jackson and never play again. Right. Tua, even with that considered, is still a quote-unquote safer play than well, Herbert based off what we know. So, yeah, well, I do think that if if that's the way you approach it, I think it becomes a much more interesting conversation, right? Let's assume that Tua will be a better NFL player. Let's, be, let's assume that they project the way we expect them to, right, in terms of what we know from each guy. Tua will be a better NFL player than Justin Herbert, but if he is as injury-prone as people are scared of, he will miss what? a third, 50%, whatever it is, he will miss a ton of time, right? Where is, so that, those things work against each other, right? At some point, you miss too much time for it to be worth, for the fact that you're a better player to matter, right? You become Chad Pennington. At some point, you would just, you break apart too much for it to matter. So that, I think, is an interesting discussion. But A, I don't know if we're even capable of predicting that to any degree of certainty. And B, I don't even know if that is what they're concerned of or if they're just taking a look at the tape and coming to the conclusion that the guy with the rocket arm who stands taller is a better player because that second Here's, part would be terrifying. This is perfect. I'm, I'm you know, scouring Twitter right now, and our friend Andrew Perloff works for the Dan Patrick Show, and his tweet, they've got Peyton Manning on. Um, I don't know why we can't get good guests like that. We've got hmm. – um, I'm not going to say what we have. Um, <laughs> we have lesser guests sometimes, like Jeff Schwartz. Um, but they've got Peyton Manning, wow. and his quote was, for me, the buzzword was I didn't have any upside. That's Peyton Manning on his pre-draft evaluation right. on the Dan Patrick show. Because well, right? he was compared so, with Ryan Leaf. So people think, right, you've got these two quarterbacks, Ryan Leaf, stronger arm, taller, more durable, blah, blah, blah. Like they just ha- they stack these traits, and then they're like, wow, if a thousand things go right for this guy, Right. He's a robo quarterback and he's got upside, right? When it's like Peyton Manning's worst season still probably projected better than, you know, like if you were going to project them, if, if Ryan Leaf didn't have the off field issues, I, I made this Baker point a couple of years ago. Yeah. Baker's our number one quarterback, which means he doesn't mean he's like the best quarterback every single year. It means if you have 10 seasons of all the quarterbacks in the 2018 class, he's probably best in seven or eight of those years, maybe six of those years. So, like, if you were projecting Peyton and Leaf, you could probably see the scenario where Peyton's better for, te- you know, eight years and Leaf's better for two years. But, like, you can't look at something and say, well, because this guy throws faster, you know, well, his ceiling's so higher. It's, this is it's the thing. Ludus, it's ludicrous. I, I was talking – I had this beef or this point on Twitter about Herbert. Like, so, no, it was uh, Jordan Love, right? Jordan Love has the highest upside of any quarterback in this class. It's like, does he? Because Joe Burrow's upside is he's the same guy in the NFL as he was in this final college season, at which point he's like an all pro, right? He's the most, he's like one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the league. He makes a ton of big plays. He works outside of structure. Like at that point, he is basically the second best quarterback in the NFL in any given season, right? Like, how many things need to go right for Jordan Love to even have that potential? But, it's absurd. So, yeah. so the, the one thing I'll say about that the other way is Patrick Mahomes being... Yes. He had a pure he had pure arm talent, but it showed on the field enough. And he had a, like, you know, 90-plus PFF grade his last year. Like, he had really good seasons and, and showed really good stuff. And then he meshed with an offensive coordinator slash play caller in offensive system that actually, 
you know, kind of deleted right. as negatives, but so the, to speak. The right? way of the way. So the projecting every Jordan Love or Josh Allen into the Patrick Mahomes thing, right, assumes that all quarterbacks are are the sum of their physical tools, which clearly is not the right. case, right? Right. Because there's a ton of disastrous quarterbacks that have had spectacular physical tools, at which point upside has to factor in the other aspects of playing quarterback in the NFL. Accuracy, decision making, poise, the ability to, to read progressions, to work through, to actually play the position. And they don't. So, so far, we have seen zero evidence that Jordan Love has that kind of upside. We've seen tremendous evidence that Joe Burrow has that kind of upside, even if his arm is not anything like as strong. So this was the point we made again with, with Baker Mayfield a couple of years ago, right? It was like, who has more upside, Baker Mayfield or Josh Allen? And everyone would say Josh Allen. I would argue it was Baker Mayfield because his upside is he's the same player in the NFL that he was in college, which is to say by far the best quarterback in the nation, right? Josh yeah. Allen's upside is... Not that. I mean, it's that he somehow puts together all the collection of these physical tools and he's Patrick Mahomes, but that doesn't happen. And, and the, the numbers, we could talk about this when we get into the stable and unstable metrics too. When you're, when we're just projecting players using numbers and, the, and combine metrics and all that stuff, we'll put like the 50th percent projectile on a guy uh, or projection, uh, 50th percentile projection. Right. And that's like, okay, here's his baseline. And then, the way you chart upside is like, well, what if everything does go right? What if he's, what if he exceeds expectations? So you kind of like slide it up and say, here's a 75th percentile. Here's his 90th percentile. Like that's the guy's upside. And the better player generally still has better upside, right? The guy that has a better baseline still of actual performance right. will still have a better high end yes. than the guy that's coming from a lower spot. Right. The guy our- coming from a lower spot has many things to happen. Like Josh Allen had have a lot of things happen just to get to Baker Mayfield's level yes. before he even exceeded him. Right, because our projections are at least rooted in the idea of this is what we've seen from a player so far in terms of what he does well, what he doesn't do well, wh- how he has played the game from a stylistic and f- like fundamental standpoint. This is what he's been doing at the college level. If you're just looking at a guy and saying, well, he's tall, he's big, he has a rocket arm, Therefore, his upside is Superman. It's it's just a stupid way of doing it, to be honest. All right. Um, yeah, I think the other um, interesting picks are kind of pivot points for me. The Chargers at six, I, I decided to not take Justin Herbert. And um, the conclusion I made on Herbert is I don't love taking him in the first. I will take him if I have two first-round picks. So yeah, I ended so up taking him at 20. That's kind of how we've Jaguars. been working this all the way, right? So. Compare, give me your counter, I assume it is a counter, to um, new PFF analyst Seth Galina's take on the two-for-one podcast. It basically says Herbert can't play in the NFL. Can't do it. Yeah. So so there's two a couple things at play. First of all, the fact that the Dolphins really like Herbert, I was going to ask you, do you think that Josh Allen's team-driven success with the Bills has – the Dolphins, who are in the same division, you know how you know how the NFL is. They think it's cyclical and it's copycat and all that stuff. Do you think Josh Allen's team success has the Dolphins thinking, "Here's a tall guy hmm. with a good arm and good athleticism. He can be our Josh Allen." Not that you should even, be chasing a Josh Allen, but I could feel I feel like that's part of their reasoning. 
I don't even think it's I don't even think you need to limit that to Josh Allen. I think if you look at the last few years, you've got Josh Allen, the Bills are good right now. So Josh Allen yeah. looks good and there's a lot of his overall analysis is being skewed by the fact that his team is doing really well. Daniel Jones dramatically outperformed what most people thought he would do as a rookie and at least showed enough good that if you were so inclined, you could skew positive and say Daniel Jones will be really good if he works out all the bad stuff. Patrick Mahomes developed from one of the most, you know, crazy, unpredictable quarterbacks in the NFL into the best quarterback we've ever seen in terms of how he's playing right now. Um, Lamar Jackson developed from one of the least accurate quarterbacks we've ever seen, a massively flawed prospect into the league's MVP. If you're looking at like the last few years of quarterbacks coming into the league, you would e- you could easily take the opinion of like now has never been a better time to take a guy with massive flaws but huge tools yeah. and mold him into a successful player. Yeah, so this would be my argument for Justin Herbert, right? Um, I would say his deficiencies are not seeing the field, uh, quickly enough. So I think, you know, when, when Seth talks about can't play, like he's talking about um, processing and mm-hmm. footwork. And and then when you combine the short area accuracy, it's not great. Those, if you just isolate those traits, those are actually similar to what Josh Allen, uh, you know, his, his flaws coming out. Big arm. If you put him in this vertical offense, intermediate and deep, he can create some chunk plays. Now the Bills have actually worked the other way and said, let's, let's, Let's work the underneath stuff. And I think the Bills have done a nice job of game planning, having a pass-first type of system, putting Josh Allen in position to complete more passes, right? And so I think we've also we've seen that that's possible. You can kind of scheme around some of those deficiencies. Now, if Allen could hit a couple of those downfield shots, you've got something there. And one of these years, he will. And like I said, there'll be a season where Josh Allen has 28 touchdowns and 10 rushing, and he looks like a star. I think there might be one in there. With Herbert... I think you have some of those too. If he could still, he hits the downfield stuff pretty well. Seam route doesn't have great touch, but he can zip it. He can flip the field. If you could scheme up some of the underneath stuff and tap into his rushing ability, he didn't do that. This is, you know, mentioning Jeff Schwartz again. Jeff Schwartz is pretty reasonable as a Oregon homer with his Justin Herbert evaluation. He think he knows his deficiencies, but also thinks he was limited a little bit in the Oregon scheme. Use, should have used him more as a runner, which they did down the stretch. If you tap into some of that, it, that's the thing. So that's the thing with a Herbert, right? I'm giving you like eight different things that need to happen for him to succeed, mm. right? So I mean that, like, use that as a baseline. Joe, Joe, Joe Burrow, what do you need for him to succeed? You just you throw him out there, give him a decent supporting cast, you feel good about it. With Tua, I think you feel good about that. With Herbert and everybody else, it's like if these five to eight things happen, this guy will be fine. So that's the path for Herbert. All that said. The payoff is is incredible. If those things do happen, the payoff is incredible, and you feel great about it. And what I think the Jags did, the Jags essentially take Jerry Judy at nine, they take Herbert at twenty, and they they stole a free shot at a quarterback with the Jalen Ramsey trade. That that's how I'm viewing it. So um, those are the types of teams I'm willing to take the first uh, first round flyer on. The teams have, that have the multiple picks. Have you seen um, Dave Gettleman trying to? work up the trade value number four it did he's out there uh he's out there saying the giants have been exhaustive in their prep when it comes to justin herbert including facetime conversations with joe judge etc this has been put out through ian rapaport and uh mike i've never how is that guy's name pronounced garofalo 
Garofolo. Garofolo. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, there was a thing. Damn, I forgot where I saw this over the weekend, but it was like basically Dave Gettleman isn't the idiot he's being portrayed to be, right? He's actually. It's our friend Brandon Bean, Bill's GM, was okay, on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Was on Pardon My Take. Yep. And he's right. He is right. The, the like one of the most frustrating things about Gettleman is he isn't a moron at all. Like he's smart. He's just stuck. He's very entrenched in his own ways. Nicely, that's not nearly a large enough ring binder. It's also playing merry hell with your uh, background. That's my binder. Um, the like his he's not an idiot, but he's very entrenched, like in his way of doing it. Right? It's like this is how I do it. And I really don't like new information coming in and trying to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, but like, he's not dumb. And when, he does a lot of stuff smartly to try and like, in, you know, improve his own position. So this idea of like, oh, the Giants are w- exhaustively working on Justin Herbert. Zero to do with Daniel Jones. They are clearly 100% sold on him. It's, well, if we want this guy, we have to get up to four. So yeah. it's opening the trade market for this pick. Now, he is a guy that is, I think, never traded down in the draft, which, again, only enhances. Like, if if you have never traded down the draft, but you actually want to get the hell out of this pick, you need to make sure somebody's calling you. Otherwise, it's not going to happen, right? So you put out this information that, hey, if you want Herbert, you're going to have to make it as high as four to ensure that the phone is ringing when you're on your pick and want to get out of it. I'll tell you what, draft strategy, though, is absolutely fascinating, right? Like, if you look, Dave Gettleman, I I haven't heard him explain this necessarily, but he must be like, all right, I'm not going to trade down. I'm, I trust, essentially what that's saying is I trust my evaluations. I know that at this point in the draft, I'm going to get the right player because I trust my evaluations, Mm -hmm. right? Then you have the Patriots and other teams who are willing to trade down left and right because they understand the value in the draft. They know that the difference between the player here and the player 10 picks below is almost nothing. And, they, and they're and they willing to say, I know less, I'm going to miss more, give me more picks and opportunities. I've also heard of teams that say, okay, when we pick, here's three players I'm happy with. I'm really happy with these three. It, this is kind of like a tiered system, and it's kind of like what the Patriots do too. But it feels like, um, they're not they're not actively listening for trade downs. It's only if their players aren't there. Like here's right. three players at my pick. I'll take them if they're there. Oh, they're gone. Okay, now I want to try to trade down. Or one of them's there. Give me the, just give me the top guy. I'm taking them. I'm not listening to calls. I'm happy. So there are all these different schools of thought uh, in how you do it. Obviously, we would skew more toward the, the trade down because the um, the uncertainty just increases as you go further down the draft there's also Um, there's at least one team out there that essentially just creates a draft board of like here's my 75 players i'm just going to take them in order yeah like my pick rolls around i'm taking the next guy on our board even if in everybody else's eyes it's like a two-round reach right i mean that's new england too sometimes that's teams and and there's so as as much as we you know laud them for trading down and doing great things i think there's there's definitely certain times where it's like don't take a guy in the second if he's not if he's still going to be there in the fourth. Right. Right. Now you don't know that, but you can at least he's probably not good enough that you're not willing to like roll the dice. Like, oh, well, I can't miss on Tavon Wilson. It's Gotta interesting. Take him in the second. Yeah, it's an interesting way of doing it because you essentially say, All right, this we're perfectly prepared to take every guy on our board thinking that he is a good player, even if everyone else mm-hmm. perceives it as a massive reach. We will be persuaded to move off that if someone comes in with the right offer, but we're not going looking. Like if our pick comes up, nobody's calling. We'll just take the guy 
I yeah. like I'm okay with that. And to be honest, like in theory, if you're good enough at evaluating, and the big problem with all this strategy is nobody is. Like the single biggest advantage you could have in the draft is understanding that you don't have any idea what you're doing and neither does anybody else. Like it's all a crapshoot. Therefore, you just need to maximize your chances. Um, like if you were good enough and you were confident enough in your evaluations, it really wouldn't matter that you weren't maximizing the value of like where he's taken versus everyone else. If you're just getting good players, you're winning. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about trading up. Our guy, uh, Timo, put a poll out about the Julio Jones trade a couple years ago. Was it the right move at the time for the Falcons? Right. They traded way up to get Julio, and I've talked about this for years. I think they got a Hall of Fame caliber player, and as expected, because of all everything that they gave up, the roster still got worse. They had a peak in 2011 and 12 where they almost made it to the Super Bowl, and then 13, 14, and 15, massive decline, because they could not replenish the roster with other picks. So every year you're sitting there like, hey, we have Julio. He's awesome. He's great. He's worth it. He's a Hall of Famer. But there's no, you can't fill any other holes. And then they finally, was... de- then they then they came out of it. But they, the inevitable thing with the trade-up is unless you offset it with multiple trades down after that, which I think can offset things a little bit, kind of like right. diversify in your portfolio, then the roster almost inevitably is going to get worse. And that was at basically the second most important position in the NFL. Like yeah. it basically, so what it reinforces is you have to do one of two things. Either you have to do exactly what you just said, which is reverse what you just did, right? You gave up a ton of draft capital to make this move happen in order to offset it. The one player cannot offset it unless he's a quarterback. So one of two things needs to happen. Either you made that move for the quarterback, in which case the quarterback is the one player who is powerful enough in terms of wins, like generating wins by himself, that he can offset the fact that you have undercut the rest of the roster. Or you need to do what you just talked about and rebuild the draft capital that you just threw away to get this guy like the Seahawks, right? Where they turn like one pick into LJ Collier and a whole ton of other picks further down the draft. Those are the two things. One of those two things needs to happen. If you're going up for a Julio, you need to be prepared to replenish those picks with everything else at the back end. Otherwise, no matter how good that guy is, he cannot offset the loss of draft capital and talent. Yeah, we said that about the Jets last year, right? Like, love the move to go get Sam Darnold, but if you're going to build around him, you have to take... Then you're sitting there at number three next year. We love Quinn and Williams, but you have to do everything you can to trade down. But critically, accumulate picks. yes. So I think that's, I think in a, in a, I think smart team building would always do that anyway, right? So, but my point is that if Sam Darnold was Patrick Mahomes, like he's good enough that it didn't matter, right? Even True. if you didn't replenish the picks, he would be good enough that it was still a net win. Right. But Sam Darnold so far hasn't been that guy. So in order to build around him, you need to go and replenish the picks. And, and the point is, um, as Eric would say, chase the fat tail, Sam. Uh, which means chase the high end of the distribution, you mm. know, and, and there's at least a chance that that guy's, you know, at the high end and, it, and it's worth it. So um, to finish off my mock draft, really quick, say, where so, the hell are we in your mock? Uh, still only at six, the chargers. <laughs> so here's, here's the pivot point I thought was interesting. The chargers where I didn't take Herbert, they took the best offensive tackle on the board in Tristan Wirfs. Jedrick Wills, another offensive tackle went eight to the Arizona Cardinals. I took Judy for the Jags at nine, the Browns at 10, in my previous mock draft, I put Josh Jones in there at Houston, but I reconsidered my stance, and I said at number 10 for the Browns, I think they would not be smart to just 
focus on tackle. I think if a CD lamb is there, this goes back. You, you, you might have to do it, right? I, I, I think you might have to. I'm not going to. So on our draft board, Josh Jones is our number four tackle. We yes. can, you can go through, you can go either number four tackle or wide receiver one or one A, depending on how you want to rank them on a given day. Yeah. And that's where the old Browns philosophy, never pass on a blue, might come up. CD so, Lamb's a blue. Yes. I, so the thing about those principles is that I think they're smart, but I think sometimes you need to throw them out the window when there's something that comes along that changes it. Because it's not just – the question for them is, what like what is a bigger problem? The drop-off from tackle number four to tackle number five or the drop-off from wide receiver one – to wide receiver, let's say four, five in the se- like in the second top of the second, like which is a steeper cliff, because that's what they're going to have to negotiate. And that's fair. That would be even if they didn't have a need that needed filling at left tackle, they do have a need that fill- needs filling at left tackle. So it's it's a <laughs> steeper both those cliffs, and b what happens if we don't like you know what happens if we don't even fill that position. Because here's my strategy. If I'm GM of the Browns at number 10 here, I am bringing the Brinks truck to Jason Peters, despite him being injury prone. I'm calling up Washington about Trent Williams. Mm. I will find a way. Like, if I could pick a CD lamb, I will find a way to get myself a left tackle. The other thing is, adding Jack Conklin at right tackle, we always talk about creep back toward average along the offensive line. They're pretty good at three out of five spots. So they're... They're in that average offensive line category. You just you don't want a you know Liability. a disaster at left tackle. Yeah, which they right? have right now. Right now they do. So I can either go Jason Peters, I can go Trent Williams, I can go second or third round and get hopefully less of a disaster than I have right now. I don't know, <laughs> but there's also something to the guy that's going to get open and get open quickly and having C.D. Lamb on the field with Odell Beckham, with Jarvis Landry, with the two tight ends. I think. Could be gold if the opportunity is there. I, I think, look, anytime I would, CD Lamb is one of the best players in this draft. I think anytime you could snag him, you're doing well overall. But I think the Browns, more than most teams, are going to be concerned, particularly in the way you've got it, right? Where Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wirfs, and Jedrick Wills are already gone. And you've got, like, it's, it's generally perceived, right, to be that four top tackles and then a pretty steep drop off to the next group, tier two. I don't know that the Browns could pass on number four to risk that drop off. In our in in, in real life, Makai Becton is is being considered there. And look, right. I understand. There's a lot of evaluators that do believe in Makai Becton. I understand that. I don't think he's I don't think he's going to be a bust necessarily. We just we just think it's a you know a, a lower percentage chance that he's as good as the other guys. That's all. But even our friend Joe Thomas has him as the number one potential option for the Browns at 10. Like, there are some people who understand offensive line play that like Mekhi Becton. So there are people that might be happy with him there. But I think think it's a legitimate question to ask. As I tweeted yesterday, I think teams should actively be trying to get four deep at wide receiver and two deep at tight end and just have difficult guys to cover all over the field. This isn't new. This isn't groundbreaking. But that would be the Browns pick there. Um, one of the other pivot points was the Niners previous drafts. I've had them sprinting to the podium to take Henry Ruggs. I went a different route. I went CJ Henderson for them, who I think would be fantastic for them. Ease him in as cornerback two. Maybe he eventually takes over for Sherman as the guy going forward. 
I think the Niners at all of these crucial positions still have room to improve at receiver, corner, O-line depth. I think C.J. Henderson would be there. And then I gave rugs to the box, where I think that combination with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin could be pretty nice. You know what we should do? We should have, we should add, you know, our like longstanding lunch bets of various things. We yeah. should have a couple for the draft where we do over under on certain players coming off the board. You think you think all the receivers are going to go lower? I think that's I your think, general so take Ruggs, on Ruggs and Rugs is the one. Rugs is the one. We should do an over under on where he gets drafted. Where do you think it is? So his what is his actual over under? It's insanely high, right? I don't know. I, all I know is even before the combine, we talked about right. my feeling was that he was going to go run four two and be the top wide receiver off the board, and that we would mm-hmm. start hearing rumblings about him being off the board. What I did not, what I didn't expect, is that our own uh, projection system would take the combine <laughs> into consideration that heavily and say yes, he projects like the Tyree Kill, Deshaun Jackson types who changed the game. I wasn't expecting us to go that route, our, our analytics guys. But I was expecting the NFL to go that route, and I don't know if that has, um, you know, changed at all. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ruggs is the top one off the board. So where do you I think see, he's? Where do you think he's going to go? I can honestly see people talking themselves. So you've talked about Judy being the drop down guy, right? Mm-hmm. If you're so, if the NFL either has to talk themselves into a guy or out of a guy, right? CD Lamb neutral. Does everything pretty right. well. I don't think I don't think teams are over undervaluing anything he does. I could see teams talking themselves out of Judy. Oh, he was in the slot and he only ran four four and he's only this and he's only that. He can come down. I can see teams talking themselves in to rugs because he ran four two and you can't teach speed and we're just gonna do it. Okay, so the betting markets have had the betting markets are basically saying fourteen. I'd say under. You think he's going to go uh, higher than fourteen? Higher, as in higher, higher, like the, the number that through thirteen. Yes, I definitely think it's going to go the other way. So, lunch on that. We can't eat lunch together for the next like three. Not years. together. Without, well, look, our bets I'll are like two years a, in the making. So I don't think this like, falls out of the. Uh, I'll send you a DoorDash. Exactly. Um, I don't think this falls uh, yeah. out of the typical running for our bets. Yeah, lunch on that for Let's sure. Do that. I, I think rugs goes. That's our number, right? 14? Yeah. Um, any other interesting combos here? So the Raiders, they're you know team that picks twice. Christian Full. I, I think they have to walk away with the receiver. They don't have to, but, you know, they'd, they'd be smart to walk away with a receiver in a corner in this. In my draft, they do. LaVisca Chenault, the more yeah. I watch him, yes. So interesting walk. picks to me in your mock, right? You have... Um, you have Grant Delpit going really quite high. The Cowboys at whatever number that is. Yeah. 17. I, I think the Cowboys, the Cowboys have, um, what did I say in there? Is it three fifths or four? Yeah. Four fifths of their projected starting secondary is in the last year of their contract. The only guy that's not is Anthony Brown. If the Cowboys don't properly address the entire secondary. Who they just re-signed, right? They just re-signed Anthony Brown. But, um, Jordan Lewis, Chidabe Awuzie, Xavier Woods, and HaHa Clinton-Dix. That's the rest of their starting five in the secondary. They're all in the last year of the contract, or HaHa was just a one-year deal. So I'm saying Grant Delpit is the short and long-term play for the Cowboys 
at 17. They must address the secondary if they're taking a long-term team-building approach here. So my, that's uh, why I went Delta. Button. There's a lot to be desired. You're like, oh, yeah, let me take my headset off. Try, yeah, try and get the headset well off. And, um, the people are watching us, Sam. The YouTube channel, thank you guys for tuning in. I mean, what is, is it with Dallas allowing like half their roster to hit free agency at the same time? They took the defense doesn't matter phrase hmm. like to, to a whole new level. Um, it, you know, as much as I would love to invest in another receiver, we talk about actively get to four deep. Like if they added a Jalen Rager to Amari <laughs> Cooper and to Michael Gallup, man, I mean, I would be tempted by all of those speed receivers to make a Jalen Rager wide receiver three in my team. But I think Dallas has to address that secondary. So the other name, that's it's really not like they're that good currently anyway, but good. Yeah. Sorry. The other name that's really interesting. You have T Higgins going to the Eagles. That's, yeah, Eagles fans don't like that. No, I wouldn't like that either. That's really high, and it's the type it's the type of receiver that they don't want. You think you think they're just out on the big receivers right now? I don't think they're because, out on it, but I think like it, so. If if there's a missing part to the receiving core, it's not that right. If you're like even if you're and even if you're building like a succession plan to the future, you're going to want to hope that our Sega Whiteside can replace Alshon Jeffrey. Yeah, like you want to add another guy to that. So now you've got three guys that are all big body guys that don't really get open. I just ugh, I don't like it. All right. Well, I understand. I I think Carson Wentz's best work is going to be done by guys that are making him throw down the field. Um, also, I wanted Rager for them, but I, he's he's the guy. The more I think about him, I just he goes higher and higher in all yes. my mocks. So I put him at eighteen. I would love Rager for a lot of teams. The Eagles, I think the Saints. Would be a great I, fit for him. I think that there is a sneaky chance that Rager is the third receiver off the board. I think it's working the other way. Betting markets have him more as the second rounder. Well, uh, you say that, and yet Daniel, Daniel Jeremiah tweet as of 10 minutes ago. Talked to a bunch of GMs over the weekend. A couple of guys will go higher than anticipated, of which Jalen Rager is one of them. I honestly think he could be the third receiver off the board after Ruggs. Or not after Ruggs, after Lamb and uh, Judy. You know what I get to give you is um, Kelly's Uncle Frank sent me his draft takes yesterday. Oh, yeah? There's like a day, like week of the draft where he just like unloads his takes on me every year. Yeah, yeah. What do we got? And um, What does Frank This say? should be its own segment. I'll, I'll give you the guys he's higher on and lower on in do no it. particular order. And then his explanations are great. They're pretty much all helmet scouting. Yes. It's like, <laughs> when's a Baylor receiver ever been good? It's awesome. Perfect. Um Uncle Frank's 10 favorite players in no particular order. Yes. Justin Herbert, Isaiah Simmons, C.D. Lamb, Jeremy Chin, Ezra Cleveland, Zach Bond, Cole Kemet, Kemet, Patrick Queen, Tristan Wirfs, Harrison Bryant. Okay. Um, the one I said, Herbert, like, mm. Do we only get um, explanation? we only get, like, reasoning behind the bad ones? I, I kind of gave him my takes, and then he came back. So okay. I'll, I'll explain to you where, where he said that, right. what he said. The busts, T. Higgins, he's with you, uh, Tua, Jacob Eason, Grant Delpit, Andrew Thomas, Gross Matos, Xavier McKinney, Jonathan Taylor, Jedrick Willis, uh, Wills, and Denzel Mims. Huh. So I would give, so I went back with like one-liners on each guy. And then with Mims, he's like, Baylor, speedy Baylor wide receiver, seen that before. With McKinney. <laughs> When was the last good Alabama defensive back? <laughs> uh, with Andrew Thomas, he's a Patriots fan, so he said, well, I've been 
torched by Isaiah Wynn, so I can't buy into him. Torched by him? He got injured. I know. So that's uh, those are his general takes. <laughs> okay. And then I sent him to the draft sim, and he's been addicted ever since. Perfect. I with it. Um, uncle Frank's, he's only like, it's Kelly's uncle by like marriage, so you know, it's like, He's only a few years older. Yeah, so it's not like some old crazy drunk uncle. He's a good dude. Um, yeah. But I, I figured his draft takes should have been part of the show. You know? Absolutely. The the other guy that I think this isn't necessarily a, is going to go. Well, probably is. There, there's always been a section of people that appear to be monstrous Justin Jefferson fans. Um, and a lot of them appear to be very, like very football guys. You know what I mean? I, under, I understand it. So I lean more toward... Um, I, I, I like, I, I liked Jefferson. I liked a lot of what he did. I think football guys look at him and they're just like, he's always open. Yes. And we looked at it and we're like, ah, he's kind of schemed open quite a bit. It's so, all against zone and all that stuff. But I think he's a good route runner. He's nuanced and he can win from the slot. Well, this is the thing, right? So do you see him playing on the outside in the NFL? I don't think there was anything that said he can't play on the outside just because we didn't see him. He's got good size. He's got good footwork. And the fact that he's a nuanced route runner from the slot with, with that good size, it's not like he's playing. He's not, he's not the short shifty slot. He's like, you know, just guy who he just understands defensive back leverage and he knows how to have wiggle at the top of his route. He does all these things that I think would still work on the outside. I also think you don't necessarily have to put him on the outside a ton. Victor Cruz was my comparison for him. And if people remember Victor Cruz in his prime, like well worth the first round pick, he won on the outside. He could run double moves. He could run kind of the vertical route tree. And he was a bit, it was more of like a vertical intermediate and vertical slot weapon. I think that is Justin Jefferson. Um, there, so let's go to the, we don't have to go through Peter King's mock draft, but there were more nuggets in there that I thought were interesting. Yeah. Let's and just one talk them, about the day, the things that came up. Okay. Um, Wrap up my mock draft in it real quick. Anything else? That came, I gave, So I gave Jefferson to the Titans at 29. Yeah. Which might be a little redundant to Adam Humphreys there. But I still think he can win on the outside. Corey Davis leaves in a year, and you're, and you're, you're building around Tannehill. So you flipped, yeah, you're, and your 49ers saying you essentially flipped what everyone else has been doing, and you went corner first with C.J. Henderson, yeah. and then receiver you get, then Brandon Ayuk at, the, at 31. Most yes. people have been going the rugs route with the first pick and then trying to get them a corner at the back end of the first. I don't yeah. hate doing it your way. Yeah, Ayuk averaged 10 yak per reception, yards after the catch per reception in his career, killer kick returner and punt returner. Throw him on the field with Debo and all that other speed that the Niners have, man. Dude, I, so one of the things I found myself doing when you're going through these guys, and you remember you know the phrase like adds value as a return man? And it used yes. to be like a fairly significant thing. I mean, now it's like we're like two steps away from the kickoff being completely eradicated as a play. Like right. if you have if your ads value as a return man is not as a punt returner, it's irrelevant, basically, because it yeah. doesn't it's not a, it's not happening anymore. Like Cordero Patterson is almost breaking the all time NFL record for punt re- or for kick return touchdowns. I think his biggest impediment to that happening is the league removing the kick return as a play before right. he gets there. But, like, he's basically the greatest return man in NFL history, and it's almost not going to matter because they're just going to eradicate that play. So, like, you know, a lot of the best plays I loved of K.J. Hamler's career have been kick returns. And I have to keep stopping myself and being like, it's irrelevant. It's not, it's not going to be a thing in the NFL. 
But I, but I, I think the same, the guy that has kickoff and punt return value now becomes the guy that has jet sweep value and shovel pass value and, you know, manufactured touch value more than ever. So that would be, uh, LaVisca, that'd be Ayuk, and that'd be Hamler, the top three guys, I think, just off the top of my head in this draft. So you have to go to a team that's going to use you in that way. I think the Niners are going to use guys in that way. And you think about how difficult the Niners are to defend. If it's not like, well, watch out where Debo Samuel is. You know, he's the guy that takes the end around rounds and the jet sweeps and all that stuff. What if you have two guys on the field that can do that? Plus, you have a Mostert in the backfield with a really good blocking scheme. And all of a sudden, there's like 4-3, four, 4-4 four, four speed guys all over the place. That's really tough. So that was my thought process there. Um, circling back to Justin Jefferson, there was three things that came out of Peter King's mock draft. One of that that really... Um, resonated with me. One of them was the Justin Herbert thing. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute again with the Dolphins. Um, the other one was Justin Jefferson. There are people all over the place. Like Renner was kind of low on him. We talked to some NFL friends who were higher on him. People are all over the place. And I think Peter King was essentially saying the same thing. People are all over the place on him, but there are teams in the 20s. There are, I think he said, a playoff team in the 20s is debating whether or not to go get him in the teens. That's the type of info that Peter gets, which I think is great, which is like, here's this player. We, we think we know where his value is. We're going to go get him if he's in the teens. The teams that that could apply to, Vikings, Patriots, Saints, um, Seahawks, Ravens, Titans, and then the Packers are at 30. My guess is it's the Vikings or the Saints. And if I really had to put money on it, I would say it's the Saints. Yeah, yeah, the Saints makes a lot of sense to me because they're a team, A, that has aggressively traded up for guys they liked in the past, B, have maybe the most complete NFL roster in the league right now, and therefore don't need need to, you know, assemble all these picks. I Yeah, I could see that. And if for no other reason, it makes no sense for the Vikings to do it because that would make the Diggs trade look even more absurd. I think I think if the Vike so I use the Victor Cruz comp. I think Je- Jefferson's Jefferson is similar to Adam Thielen in that I think pretty good route runner can play on the out. I think he could play on the outside. Probably better off winning in the slot. I don't know if he's going to be as good as what Thielen's been at his peak, but I could see the Vikings maybe looking at those two skill sets and either saying we're comfortable with that, that's what we know, or that's redundant. We would rather a Rager, a speed guy or whatever it might be. Yeah. Well, more um, to the point, I just, there's no, like it would be bad enough and they're almost in a position when they need to do this to replace Stefan Diggs with the first round pick that you got for Stefan Diggs. Like that in and of itself would be kind of silly. If you have to trade up to replace yeah. Stefan Diggs with the pick that you got for Stefan Diggs plus other picks, but it's that, cheaper. That would be bad. Um, for the saints though, you've got the Joe Brady connection, You've got the fact that Jefferson does play in the slot, and now they've got Emmanuel Sanders and Michael Thomas, and uh, Jeff- they usually run with the big slot. Um, Jefferson also caught 12 out of 13 contested catches last year. That's unsustainable, but you kind of saw the ball skills, the back shoulder skills, and all that stuff. Like I could see him and Drew Brees being really good. And I think if the Saints are truly all in, it's get another playmaker. Get another guy so that you just can't cover these guys, you know, and that's why I gave them Denzel Mims and said, okay, he could be that vertical threat to go with Sanders and, um, and Thomas, right? Yeah. Um, the other note 
that I thought was fascinating was that the Chiefs were considering trading up for Henry Ruggs if he gets into the 20s. Yes, which is where I think he should go. Not to so Kansas City, to in the 20s. Just in the 20s. And for all these people, I'm not going to trash the people that have mentioned this. There's been a lot of people who are mocking running backs to the Chiefs or connecting the Chiefs to running you, backs in general. Yeah. Which is, abs- like, which is absurd on many levels. But like... My tweet yesterday that like teams should actively be going four deep at wide receiver. And then I tweeted, you know what? The Chiefs should just grab the top wide receiver in the draft at, at 32. I don't think like Ayuk, if, if, if Brandon Ayuk is there at 32 and you add another yak weapon to Tyree Kill and Mecole Hardman and then Sammy Watkins is gone in a year. Like when you have Patrick Mahomes, make life as difficult as possible for opposing defenses. Keep the pedal to the metal. Keep having interchangeable running backs. Like the Chiefs should not be forgetting about wide receiver in this draft, as great as they are on offense. Can you imagine how insufferable the forecast guys are going to be if the Chiefs take rugs? Like, that combination is, they're oh going to gosh. lose their minds. Rugs and Tyree Kill. Also, here's the thing. I, this this was like when I when I used to have to, like, criticize Tim Tebow as a football player. I had I had to be like, he's a great guy, but... I don't think he's a great football player for the NFL. Patrick Mahomes, I think, is a great player, but he's been helped by the system as well. He's been helped by the situation. He's been helped by Andy Reid, who has consistently, that entire system has consistently elevated every different type of style of quarterback. There's a part of me that wonders, okay, what if something did really happen to Tyree Kill for an entire season and you didn't have him, right? Is there going to be a point where it's going to be difficult to, to keep a Tyree Kill or a Travis Kelsey having both of them on the field? What would happen if you lost the elite tight end? What would happen if you lost the elite Tyree Kill? Uh, elite Tyree Kill? Don't forget, those two guys, plus, plus Andy, got the career year out of Alex Smith. Ridiculous career year where he led the league in passer rating. So we've seen what they can do with other people. Can Mah- I want Mahomes to continue to break the league. I want to give him the best opportunity to succeed. Not that he can't. I think he'll still be great. But having Tyreek, having Kelsey has been huge for his development. I do think that given, you know, so one of the big uh, caveats that you have to throw out there is, or not even that, you, that gets thrown at you. If you ever talk about Tyreek Hill, there will be a group of people that start talking about his off-field, you know, yeah. atrocities effectively. So I think if you, I think you would be smart to build in contingency to Tyreek Hill. On the field, he is a phenomenal player of which there is almost no equal, and he's, he's a unique player. Off the field, he seems like a very unpleasant individual based off his, his history of incidents. And he's one incident away from being booted out for an extensive period of time. So I think the Chiefs would be smart to build in a contingency for that happening. And I don't know that Miko Hardman is that contingency. I think last year he was, though. I mean, it was sure. a good start. He was an explosive I mean, he was a, player. He was a useful compliment. Yeah. yeah. But I and think... don't forget, don't forget, Tyreek did start as the jet sweep guy, right. right? Like, he started out as the gimmick player, and then what's, what turned him into the Deshaun Jackson type, the Deshaun Jackson plus type, was route running and downfield ball skills, right? And I think the Chiefs may have said, look, Hardman... Maybe we take that same path. We'll see if he develops because he doesn't have the same type of ball skills right now. He doesn't have the same type of nuanced route running and 
quicks that Tyreek has. But yeah, Mecole was was contingency too because we didn't know if Tyreek Hill was even going to play last year because of all the off-field stuff. Right. But I would say the Chiefs, way before they're going to draft another running back, yes, are going to yeah. focus on playmaker. I don't. I don't think that any of those guys can replace Tyreek Hill. But I think three of them has a better shot at patching it together than two of them do. do. Particularly with Sammy Watkins only there for you know a year or whatever. So I, I certainly think that like. People have been talking about Henry Ruggs as Tyreek Hill 2.0, and I think that's insane. But him, along with Hardman, along with Sammy Watkins, I think is smart contingency for the Chiefs to build in even more than it is redundancy. You know me. I'm, I'm all about forget Deshaun Jackson and Will Fuller's production. When they're on the field, the offense has been that much better. That's what you're chasing with the Henry Ruggs. That's going to be so, that different. Let's cover the lunacy in this mock that Peter King has. Lunacy by NFL standards. He doesn't just have the Dolphins taking Herbert. He has the Dolphins trading up to take Herbert. That's right. That's crazy. So here's what I'm on board with, uh, uh, with all the smoke. I think that the Dolphins liking Herbert is real. I don't know, because what, what would they be trying to do? Are they trying to leak that they like Herbert? To, why would to do what? Right, that doesn't benefit them. People knowing um, they like Herbert doesn't help them. But I'm, but not all leaked information is with a purpose. Sure. Every year there's leaked information that's literally just like people in the know know people who talk, and the information gets out there. Other information is a, like a legit smokescreen, and it's planted. Yes. Why would Miami plant that they like Herbert to keep somebody from trading up to just to just keep the charges for tra- from trading up for Tua to just be able to sit at five and take Tua? What would be the purpose there? There wouldn't be one. There isn't one. I think the the only purpose would be to just keep a team from getting to two or three to get Tua over them. Where if they're like, hey, we love Herbert, we're taking Herbert. And then the Chargers say, oh, we're going to get Tua at six. What I think because of the way Daniel Jeremiah initially put the report out which was kind of like a subtle, ah, I just think teams have uh, consider injuries more than the media. Because it started as a subtle thing, not like uh, teams really want Herbert over Tua. It was more subtle. I think it's real. And then it just started to pile on, and you get more and more sur- sources and people in the know attaching Herbert to the Dolphins. I'm buying into Herbert at the, in, in the Dolphins, and I think – Unless some team out of the blue comes up to get Tua, I think the Chargers get Tua at six. I think that's going to be the story of the draft. Well, I think, so here's the thing, right? I think the story could be, what if everyone is out on Tua? Like, what if everybody is buying into this idea that this guy is injury prone, we're scared by the hip because we can't get that fully, you know, checked out by our people. I understand that he's being checked out by, you know, the Titans doctor who's a hip specialist, but teams are stupid that way. We don't. Our guy didn't get to run over him, so who knows if this specialist knows what he's talking about. Um, and this idea that <clears throat> to what extent is he a product of Alabama? Look at all those receivers. Look at the offensive line. Look at everything there. Yeah, that was like, the other point I wanted to make earlier. Like, if teams are going to criticize him, it's injury plus that. They're right. just going to think supporting cat, or they're going to Uncle Frank scout and be like, when was the last time an Alabama <laughs> quarterback was good? You know, Frank McElroy looks. Uncle Frank Scout should definitely be now a new phrase in our parlance. Uncle Frank Scout? Yeah. Um, I love you, Uncle Frank. He likes to watch our stuff. He watches with his uh, six or seven-year-old. They, you know, they 
his, his little guys into the draft. So they'll be watching. But yeah, we're going to call it Uncle Frank Scout. Somebody's going to say, well, what about Greg McElroy? What about A.J. McCarron? What about well, all these guys previously? Why does nobody ever think about Greg McElroy? Why not? Um, I think there's a, like, I, the question to me is not like, what if Tua falls to six and the Chargers get this jackpot scenario? It's what if everybody is bailed on Tua? And, you know, we went from tank for Tua, number one, to this dude is getting Aaron Rodgers and getting drafted in the 20s somewhere because everyone got scared away because of his injury history and the fact that Alabama was really good while he was there. Like, we could be coming out of this draft day, day one, with Tua having this Rodgers-esque fall, and the dude no. lands you up on what? the Patriots. I, I don't think there's – I'm going to do the no way guy, right? This is my – I'm going to be no way guy for this one thing. I hate no way guy. I think that there's no way – and this, this isn't going out on a huge limb because we think Tua is a top 10 pick, but I think there's no way he gets past the Jaguars. Really? I think the Jags sitting on two picks, even if they have questions from an injury standpoint. Wait, I which Jags I, pick doesn't he get past? Nine. Nine. I don't think he gets past nine with the Jags. Because here's the thing. We talk about how much like recency bias influences and how much um, Josh Allen being in the division might influence the Dolphins to get a Herbert. The Jaguars are coming off of People talking about, well, you had Blake Bortles and you just sat on Blake Bortles and you drafted Leonard Fournette and you missed Deshaun Watson and you missed Patrick Mahomes and you missed all these guys. Like there's teams, like if the Bears were in this, they're in that discussion too, right? The Jags are coming off of that. And as much as we love Gardner Minshew for a sixth round pick, I think the Jags, like if they had to choose between Derek Brown or the payoff that is Tua at quarterback, it would be ridiculous to take an interior defensive lineman at nine. It would, and yeah, it would be so ridiculous. It's a move I could see them making. Can I give you the pick that he won't make it past? Besides nine, yes, yeah, I do think there's a chance he makes it past nine. He will not make it lower than eighteen, because if he makes it as far as eighteen, the Patriots will a hundred percent trade up and get him. Yeah, and that's what happens in Peter King's mock. They the Patriots trade up. To go get Tua. And it wasn't him they having inside further, right? To like 13. I think it was right. the Niners at 13. And the Niners at 13, there's a lot of rumors that they're trying to trade down, that that's a hot pick. Yeah. And by the way, my, my tweet earlier today was that if the Niners can flip, if that DeForest Buckner trade turns into like three players, it's yeah. just incre- It's just absolutely incredible. If you take a guy that you probably can't pay, that you can replace on the D line and you can flip him to three players, big win for the Niners. I, I think the Patriots are the team that could, the Saban connection and just the, I think they would like Tuba. Oh, I, I think if, see that. if he slides, I, uh, I guarantee the Patriots are going to start charging after him. Uh, so I think the absolute lowest he would make it is 18 because Miami would have already taken Justin Herbert. They probably would have, I mean, maybe depending on, according to Peter King, they would have lost a pick in order to do that and trading up. So I think given that they're now got the quarterback still have a ton of draft capital, I think they'd be plenty happy to move down five spots to pick up another pick and then start the, building around the guy. Would the Dolphins trade with the Patriots in the in the division if, knowing that, the Dolphins... Right, if it gives them Tua. They, but the Dolphins already said, we would rather Herbert over Tua. Yeah. Okay, Patriots, go take the guy that we already passed on. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I you think... Still, I think they, I mean, even if you liked Herbert more, you still don't want to be giving your division rivals a shot at the franchise quarterback, right? True. Because it's Tua versus Stidham. 
at this point. Well, I mean, either way, it's back to that understanding our limitations of what we know. Like, even if you don't think he's the guy, you still understand that there's a chance you're wrong and you don't want to give your division rival who, to be honest, probably has a better track record of this stuff than you do a chance at the other side of it. Right. Yeah. I I don't think too many people are thinking about their downside at all. They're not thinking about what can go wrong. Right. Which they should be. How about how about that? Right. So let let me sum up analytics for you right now. It's basically that. You're not considering all sides. We're, analytics and the numbers are telling you you're not considering all sides. And the two things that we hammer home in general are go forward on fourth down more and, you know, trade down in the draft so you can mitigate uh, missing on picks because there's uncertainty. How about the fact that coaches think about the worst case scenario when it comes to fourth down stuff? Like, what if I don't get it? But then evaluators only think about the good, good case scenario which is they never think about missing on players. They just think about how confident they are that they're going to hit on players. How about that? And we're always telling them, go think about the other side of it. Don't think about the negatives of the fourth down decision. Think about the positives. And from a player eval stuff, we're saying, think about the negatives you could miss. I just find that interesting because the idea of numbers helping you make decisions is just helping you take the angles that you don't normally consider. Well, I think what the numbers are doing is essentially trying to quantify the percentages of these things that we've just been guessing before, right? Eyeballing, trying to steer the right way. Based off my intuition, this way is as a higher percentage, right? Like, yeah. well, you run the numbers, it turns out actually this side is the higher percentage. So lean this way more often than this way. Right. And it's the same thing with the draft, right? We're trying you quantify what the the strike rate is instead of basically just going through and saying, well, this is this is a fifty fifty. Like, well, is it or is it 60-40 this way? In which case, right. this is the way you should be leaning. So I think in both circumstances, the analytics is just going out there and trying to put numbers so that you can actually identify what the what the, the bigger chance, what, where Occam's razor lies, right? Which side down the razor should you be falling based off what we know? That's all the analytics is attempting to do is basically tell you which side to err on every single time. So you think to a... I agree that the Patriots could make a move to go get him. And I, I think they'd I think they'd be willing to do that. I really don't think I think the Jags having two picks though, they would consider him at nine. But if so it's it's back to the how concerned are teams, right? Like our opinion of Herbert is we are so concerned with his on field play that I wouldn't waste I not waste, I wouldn't spend risk my first of two first round picks on him. But yeah. I might risk the second one because the payoff is so big. I mean, it's essentially the same conversation with Tua. It's just that the reasons are different. Instead of his on-field play is terrifying, it's actually his on-field play is great, but I'm scared of his injuries and I'm scared of how much Alabama contributed to his on-field success. So if, that is this, if it's the same qu- concern or the same question but it's slightly different reasons, are, is a team like Jacksonville sufficiently scared of those things to be like, you know what? I don't want to spend the first one. I want to spend the first one on Derek Brown, the surest thing I can think of. And instead, I'll, I'll use the second one on him. If he makes it to 20, I'll do that. Yeah. I mean, I could see that too. I just think uh, here's the other thing, talking about um, people around the league, sources and such. Mm. It is amazing. So we, we live in a vacuum. 
I, you know, we, I, I, my job's not on the line if my mock draft is terrible. You know, if if I miss on Isaiah Simmons to the Panthers, I'm not getting fired yet. But there is something to be said about these guys picking for their job, yeah. right? And and that does come into play. And that comes into play even at, say, like, number two. Like, every scenario that we come up with the Redskins is like, trade down, get three players. There's indecision with those three players. Two of them might flame out and one of them's good. Or you might hit two out of three, whatever. But you got to take those chances where it's, like, really comfortable to just be like, give me Chase Young. Like, he's awesome, right? Um, there's a comfort level with picks around the league. There's a comfort level with decisions. That comes back to the old Mariota versus Winston discussion that I think played out perfectly. Like Mariota's going to, you're going to, I mean, I know coach got fired, but you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be an eight or nine win team every year with Mariota. I mean, Winston's coach got fired too, but Winston's going to have some four win years, but maybe a 12 win in there that, that, you know, that, you know, goes to a championship. So um, that is considered with all this stuff. I don't have to consider that. I'm not trying to save my, 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 you know, hold on to my three year GM job here. Um, we are trying to kind of like maximize value and maybe incur more risk than teams are willing to take on this stuff. So the thing, um, the other thing that's interesting about, so Peter King's, you know, mock again, it's like all mocks are terrible, right? Even the most, the best strike rates are awful. Yeah. But so Peter King's, I think is really fascinating for the picks where he clearly has some kind of knowledge, right? It's, I've been told this, therefore this pick makes sense. And then there's other ones where it's like, I'm just picking this guy here because I know nothing. Um, but the ones where he actually has some information are the really fascinating ones, I think. And it's like Dolphins are in on Herbert, and it's like team trading up for, you know, whoever. I just think there's too much smoke around the Herbert thing for it yeah, not to be real. I can Dolphins. definitely see that. My concern is that it, it started so late that it feels like smoke. No, but I think, I think it started legitimately like when teams start finalizing their boards. All the all the former scouts and GMs like to tell no, you everything you, you heard in February and March is stupid. If and you it's were not in real. on him, no, because if you loved him, that would be on. That would be happening sooner. You might not no, like love him, love him at two, but you'd be like the Dolphins really like this guy because the love because he, because the love starts with scouts and scouting directors and personnel. But departments, those are the guys that and those it works the guys up. that get talked to. Yes, but the. No, but I think I think you get real and you still get real information from GMs and assistant GMs and stuff when there's good relationships. I think those guys are the people. Those guys are not putting out anything that they don't want out. Mm. Those are the only people in the building for whom I'm for whom I would say that the GM, the dude whose job it is to go in there on draft day and not screw this up or your job is done. Yeah. He is the guy that is not leaking shit unless he is 100% confident he wants that out but like it's not like you know Peter King right or Daniel Jeremiah those you know what's happening to this information like this is not you know I've talked to a guy and god the, the dude screwed me I didn't think we were on the record and then I went out. like you're talking to Peter King you know where that information is going you're talking to Jeremiah you know where that's going like the GM is the one human in that building that is not accidentally leaking out where they like a certain player or not I'm buying into it, though. I'm still buying. A um, couple other interesting discussions as far as trade-ups and stuff like that. Denver reportedly trying to trade up. They're, they want Jerry Judy. Um, they want a receiver. Atlanta 
has been rumored to try to get up into the top 10 to get C.J. Henderson. Yes. And Thomas Dimitrov, we talked about the Julio trade-up. Last year, he traded back into the first round to get Caleb McGarry. Dimitrov, you know, he's 10 years removed from being within the Patriots system or whatever, more than that, but more than willing to trade up despite coming from a system that's kind of worked the other way. I think Atlanta might have too many holes in the secondary to go get one corner. Oh, I wouldn't want to do it, but they might. Yeah, I think that that could be legit. Um, seems like Jacksonville. There's a lot of C.J. Henderson buzz in general. Mm. That's where Peter had um, had him going at nine overall to Jacksonville. I'm hearing a lot about Jacksonville and C.J. Henderson and the fact that Atlanta might try to come up and get him. It seems like Henderson really might be. He's about a top 15 guy on our board. It really seems like he might be getting some top 10 hype that's legit. He's right in there in terms of uh, he's kind of where I, he's a little bit like the Mackay Beckton's in terms of traits versus production. Like CJ Henderson's production is really not there. But last the year, well, I mean, 2018, there. it was good. 2018, it was good in a tough Good, not SEC. great, though. Yeah. Good, not great. Like he, he does not have anything like the production of a bunch of these other cornerbacks. And yet he's got all the traits. So he's he's one of those players, whether it's Justin Jefferson, C.J. Henderson, Mackay Becton. There's a bunch of people in particular, uh, Derek Brown as well, I guess. There's a bunch of NFL people that love these guys significantly more than anybody that's using data. Yeah. The um, the other one of note, I think, is Dallas trades down. They take Cesar uh, Ruiz, the center from Michigan. That's the other heavily rumored uh, just happening, I guess, is Dallas trying to replace Travis, Fre- Travis Frederick. Mm-hmm. From, a, from a human nature standpoint, another one of those things where like Dallas looks back and they're like, we drafted our future center in the first round a couple of years ago. Let's do it again now that he's had to retire. Could absolutely see that for Dallas and kind of being like a Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones reasoning. Behind the only it, thing know. there, so I, I think it... Also, because Dallas has a history of like literally plugging needs, like Dallas, I think more than any other team in the NFL drafts for need, right? We have these two positions that currently don't have an adequate starter. We will be filling them in the first two rounds of the draft, regardless of who's there. Right. Um, The one thing that would be that would make it interesting if it's Ruiz is Gil Brandt's big board has Ruiz way, way, way down versus other people's and has Hennessy, the temple center high mm. instead and Gill's fairly plugged in with Dallas right having given his history there right. so it would be surprising to me if they went center went Ruiz rather than I mean I'm necessarily not saying but uh Hennis, but in the first round anyway right like if he's that if he's that convinced that Hennessy is as higher it would be strange to me if Dallas was able to snag if Dallas snagged Ruiz in the first yeah I think, you know, that's a good point as well. Other nuggets that were interesting at the back end of this is he doesn't have Jordan Love in the first round, and he says teams that could take him, Green Bay at 62, Pittsburgh at 49. He doesn't have him close. I, I, that's where I, I would oh, I take... he's right. I would take Love as a developmental guy. Right. I, I, in a vacuum, said round three, which means, yeah, late round. Like, if I'm the Packers in round two, I, I, I'm in on that for Love. I wouldn't do it in the first. No, I I agree with him 100%. I'm just saying it's interesting with the juxtaposition with all the other talk recently of this dude's going to go in the first round. Like, he's going to go higher than even crazy people think he's going to go. 
it's interesting that Peter King comes in there and goes, the dude is like middle of the second. Um, do you want to go through some of these critical factors real quick? All right. Let's to do wrap it, quick. it up. Um, I've been sitting on this for a while. Um, it's more, it's not all my work. It's more of accumulation of a lot of the stuff our R&D team has done, the analytics folks, the computer folks. Um, basically, a lot trying to accumulate a lot of the research for player evaluation into one place. This is a lot of the stuff I'm working on behind the scenes to really help uh, NFL teams with what we're calling PFFIQ and help, you know, because a lot of NFL teams, you guys are listening to us as well. Um, a lot of the stuff we're trying to pull together and make it really easy to use. Here's how you interpret the PFF data because um, we've said for years it's not about just throwing a grade out there. Hey, this guy's a 90, he's good, go get him. There's a lot of nuance that goes into the construction of that grade, where a guy performed well, where maybe he didn't perform well, and the stuff that is stable and unstable going forward. So I put a snippet of that on the site, calling it critical factors, because it's trying to – that's what the NFL likes to call traits, Sam. Mm-hmm. Critical factors for performance. So this is PFF's critical critical factors for performance. So there are things like um, Joe Burrow and Tua – both what they'll both what rank really good when you compare them to previous college quarterbacks who have played in the NFL. There's 39 of them in our database currently. Um, so those guys project really well. And then you have a guy like Justin Herbert who ranks just 34th out of 39 qualifiers at avoiding negatively graded throws. That is one of the more stable metrics going forward. So if you're talking about where would the concern be for Herbert, it would be a number like that. So that's what I tried to highlight in this piece, just a couple nuggets on uh, – each guy or each position in the draft. I already have a problem with your running back uh, breakdown. Okay, what's what's that? What did I do? Well, you appear to have not added into the stable metrics thing. The uh, Sam Monson created elusive rating, and yet you have included all of the facets that make up the elusive it. rating. You did. <laughs> d- you essentially de- you broke down my statistic and then included all the pieces in it. Maybe we should just use elusive rating. Mm-hmm. Guess what I'm saying. Maybe. We'll go back. Well, in my deconstructed attempt of saying missed tackles per attempt and yards after contact per attempt and missed tackles per reception, all the things that make up your elusive rating, did you know that only two Power 5 running backs finished in the top 10 in both missed tackles per attempt and missed tackles per reception? It was Utah's Zach Moss and Miami's DJ Dallas. So Zach Moss is that. Kareem Hunt-ish type of, doesn't have the big play speed, but just, man, knows how to make guys miss, right? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, Moss, I think, is a guy that a lot of people are sleeping on in this draft generally. I mean, in and of, in the, even in the ecosystem of running backs. Like, there's debate as to, is it Jonathan Taylor? Is it, um, you know, Swift? Is it Hilaire, Edwards Hilaire? Like, which running back should go first? And yet, honestly, Moss has as good a case as any of them. Okay, so... Um, a couple other nuggets here. See if you find any that are interesting along the way here. But I thought that the, there's three wide receivers in this. So one of the things we were looking at was just receivers against single coverage. And when targeted in single coverage, only three receivers had more than 12 yards per target last season. It was LSU's Justin Jefferson, USC's Michael Pittman, and Minnesota's Tyler Johnson. Johnson has a lot of those, uh, a lot of the metrics point toward Tyler Johnson. So those three guys, I thought that was uh, an interesting number. And I mentioned Justin Jefferson's 92% contested catch rate. That actually falls in the unstable bucket. So if you're like, hey, big win, that's going to happen going forward. It's a very unstable metric. It's probably not going to happen. It's awesome that he did it. It's impressive. 
but that's kind of tough to bank on going forward. Yeah, every almost every single aspect of contested catches is unstable, whether it's the percentage of your contested catches that you caught or even the amount of con- of passes sent your way that were contested. The whole thing is like it's not random, but it's very unstable. For offensive linemen, we've isolated things called true pass sets. So our PFF pass blocking grade is really good, I would say, in a vacuum. But then you can make it even better if you take out play action plays where the defender has to actually worry about the run and might slow down their rush. You take out uh, moving pockets where you're almost never going to give up a pressure because you're not really protecting. You're just kind of like dancing with your guy. All these different scenarios. So what we call true pass sets. So that's kind of where we got our top four offensive tackles and why Makai Becton is on the outside looking in there. Because over the last two years, we have Tristan Wirfs third in that number, Andrew Thomas seventh, Josh Jones from Houston 11th, and Jedrick Wills 15th in the draft class. So all of those guys are in the top 15, and Makai Becton's way lower than that. So that's kind of where. And the, the true pass sets we found, um, we thought this intuitively. Eric ran the numbers on it. It made sense. We thought intuitively it would be something that is stable year to year. It really is. It's one of the best ways to evaluate pass protectors just from a pure data standpoint. Nothing's perfect, but again, you're just trying to, like Sam, you're trying to like eliminate red flags on players, right? Or find green flags, so to speak, that say maybe point you in this right direction. And that's all these numbers are are really doing. This is what, so A, Becton didn't have many of those and B, uh, sets. A, he didn't have many of them and B, he didn't do particularly well when he did have them. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's. The, I think what Chris Ballard said is the smartest way of understanding this whole draft process is each facet, they're in the elimination game, right? So each facet is just trimming the herd, cutting out a bunch of guys who, it's not to say that those guys cannot be successful, but it's saying that the chances, it's saying that at that point you're betting on finding the unicorn that breaks the system. And that's just a dumb way of approaching the draft, right? So you're better off just chopping off guys that don't meet a specific threshold, whether it's play, you know, whether it's these facets, uh, critical factors, whether it's athleticism, whether it's intelligence, whatever it is, you just chop off the bottom, cut out the guys you don't think are meeting a threshold. Some of those guys will prove you wrong, but it's a, it's, it's not smart to chase the guys that will prove you wrong, cut them all off, get yourself down to a much tighter pool. And that way you just have a better chance of maximizing getting it right. It's exactly what it is. And our method on this is I think if you went into an NFL draft room, they might be using just making up percentages. You know, it's 70 percent our scouting evaluation and 20 percent character and 5 percent numbers and five. You know what I mean? Like, it's just right. the numbers component might be a smaller bit where we might say, look, start with the numbers, the grades, because it's every single snap. Make that 70 percent of the evaluation. But and then the other things, maybe stack them on top and kind of move it up and down. Um, based off of that, even our um, Eric and those guys are doing some great work with just text analytics right now that they've put on the website too. just taking scouting reports and saying, OK, how do we quantify the scouting reports instead of just looking at traits and looking at the numbers like, OK, historically, what does this mean? Who does this compare him to? What what bucket does this put the player in and stack that on top of where the production is? Um, a couple of the concerning good and bad ones for edge rushers, Michigan's Josh, Josh Uche, who I think some people think is a sneaky first round guy too. Explosive edge rusher, twenty seven percent pass rush winning percentage over the last two years. That is the best over the last two years. Chase Young's single season was twenty seven point two percent. That was last year. That's the best we've seen since twenty fourteen. 
So Chase Young absolutely projects really well. You just wrote him up. But Uche's over the last two years, 27.1% is good for him. On the other hand, Caleb Von Chason is only 67th in win rate, 14%. So he's just he's just climbing an uphill battle to produce like a first rounder against the against history here, as yeah. we've said before. I think it's a really smart way of looking at it that none of these things are absolutes. They're all just ways of improving your overall chances. It's not to say that anybody that you eliminate here cannot be successful. It's just to say that the chances of that happening are small enough that I'm not willing to gamble on it. All right, let me wrap it up with one of my favorite players. Utah safety Terrell Burgess. Mm. He has the no, I'm going to write I'm going to write him up again for tomorrow. Um, the thing we talked about in the dra- uh, on the pod yesterday or the other day about um, value plays in the draft. Last year, the Saints got Chauncey Gardner-Johnson and fourth round, was it? And he became Sounds one of right. the most, what was that? Sounds right. I think it was fourth. We had a, 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 Sometimes I get confused by where we had him and where he right. actually went. I think we had him in the second. He went in the fourth. He was one of the better slot corners in the league last year. We've talked about the value of the slot corner. I'm not sure if we're ready to say, hey, the best slot corner needs to be a first-round pick or not because we're still touting the Okudas and the C.J. Hendersons of the world. But a good slot corner can have just as much impact as those top corners, right? Terrell Burgess had the number two coverage grade in the slot, number four when playing in the box. I think he's got great safety skills and slot skills to project to the next level, like a Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who also was one of our better performers in the slot. And there's a history of... From a stable metric standpoint, keeping the guy in a similar role, projecting him to a similar role. So uh, CGJ played well in the slot in college, did the same in the NFL. Mike Hilton from the Steelers, he's become one of the better slot corners after that's what he did really well in college at Ole Miss. So these guys, this is where you steal sneaky value in the draft at a very important position. Terrell Burgess is one of those guys, the numbers point toward him being really good at something that's really, really important. Now, coverage grade in general is unstable, but if you're going to project him in the same role, those that's the place where you might want to focus on it. So it's one of my favorite pieces to write. There'll be more. I've got a lot more on what this means. It'll be up on the website soon. The critical factors, most important numbers for the 2020 NFL draft class, plus our guy Charles put together an incredible image of Joe Barrow to help sell this thing. Dude, Charles is good. He is good. These images just get better and better. I like it. Cool, man. Want to wrap it up? Yeah. Let's get out. That's it. Let's do it. Let's be end. So it's draft week. Don't mm. forget draft 2020. You get 30% off all of your subscriptions, annual subscriptions of PFF. That's, Ed, that's edge or elite gets you the draft guide, the fantasy scouting rookie report, and all the new goodies that are over at PFF.com drafts two zero two zero. Go check it out. 30% off your annual, annual subscriptions. We're going to have the extra pod on Wednesday. Uh, well, regular pod, we're going to move it up to Wednesday, Sam, and then we'll have the extra one on Friday. That sound good? Yeah. And then TBD on how we're going to see how see how the demand is for post-draft analysis. What do you think? Yeah. All right, cool. All right, so three pods this week. We'll see you guys on Wednesday. Thanks to everybody for tuning in.
quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.